Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. I'm Ammon Swenson. On today's show, we'll hear a debate about Ballot Measure 2, the Alaska Top 4 Ranked Choice Voting and Campaign Finance Laws Initiative. We'll also balance out arguments in opposition to Ballot Measure 1 we aired in a previous Addressing Alaskans with a case in support of the measure. Let's get things started with the debate on Ballot Measure 2. You'll hear Scott Kendall speaking in support of the measure and Brett Huber speaking in opposition. This was recorded via Zoom on September 1st for a meeting of the downtown Anchorage Rotary Club. Anchorage Rotary Club Vice President Dave Myers moderated the debate. He speaks next. Just for every so for everyone's uh, edification, uh, the format today is going to be up to um, seven minutes um, for each side of the initiative uh, to to present. Uh, I will give a basically a one minute warning, uh, meaning a minute will be left in um, in your time if you're using the full seven minutes, uh, and then. After both side, uh, after both uh, Brett and, and Scott get to uh, present, then there'll be a five minute up to a, a five minute rebuttal for each, and then depending on how much time we have uh, remaining after the rebuttal, there'll be a five to ten minute Q and A session. So. I have the honor of introducing Brett Huber today. As a lifelong and outdoors enthusiast, Brett came to Alaska 36 years ago. Once here, he's had the privilege to work and live throughout our great state. Over the years, he's been a fishing guide in the Bristol Bay, Iliamna, and South Central Alaska regions, small business owner in King Salmon and Talkeetna, ran a statewide nonprofit in Soldatna, which I'm vaguely familiar with, and was first introduced into state politics in 1994 in the Matsu Valley. In addition to working for both the legislature and the state, Brett became a community activist and involved participant in many issues affecting Alaskans. Most recently, he managed the governor's successful statewide election and then joined the executive branch as the governor's director of both policy and communications. One month ago, Brett stepped away from that position to focus on to focus his attention on protection of our most basic constitutional rights by organizing a statewide campaign to defeat ballot measure two. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Huber. I am Brett Huber, and I am here to talk in opposition to Ballot Measure 2. Before I begin in that opposition, I'll tell you Ballot Measure 2 is uh, 25 pages long, but covers three main components. One is a new reporting requirement for politically active nonprofits. The second is to adopt a jungle-style primary like California instead of the one we use today. And the third is ranked choice voting. Instead of one person, one vote, and the winner wins, it's a new scheme to involve um, second, third, and fourth place choices and let computer algorithms determine. But I'm sure Mr. Kendall will provide us some more information on that. Ballot Measure 2 is 25 pages long. It's a 74-section proposal, and it's been promoted by out-of-state PACs. The groups involved are funded by billionaires the largest of whom are Catherine Murdoch from New York and video game developer Mark Merrill. So if you're like me, you have a lot of questions about this massive proposal. Again, it's 25 pages long, 74 sections. It makes huge wholesale change to Alaska's election system. And uh, as they say, the devil is in the details. There's 25 pages of detail in this initiative, which is a room for a lot of devil. Belt measure two, um, I've been frustrated and came forward in this race because I've not seen the facts presented to Alaskans in a way that they can make a choice on an initiative. I personally think that having voters make a choice on an initiative this math is not the best way to get there, but it is a way that our constitution provides, and I'm happy to participate in that process. You've not seen a sectional analysis of this bill provided by the proponents of the measure. I think one of the main reasons is if you do a sexual analysis of a bill, it would paint, point out some pretty blatant problems with the bill, including the fact that the clear language of the initiative 
is in conflict with our constitution. So I'm not an attorney, but I have read a bit and I have been involved in this process. And in my understanding, if you have clear constitutional language that says the candidate receiving the greatest number of votes shall be governor, you can pass a statute that says there has to be some plurality and ranked choice voting, but there is absolutely no way that that's gonna stand constitutional muster. Why that language is in there, why the proponents aren't talking about it, I don't know, you'll have to ask them. How does RCV work? We've heard that it's one person, one vote, just more voice and more choice. Is it one person, one vote? We've not even seen bullet points, not a copy of the initiative on the proponent's webpage. Really, it's been half-truths and platitudes. They explain RCB in two sentences. Then why is the initiative 25 pages long? In a few minutes, you'll see why we're not hearing from the other side on those issues. RCV is a failed experiment that disenfranchises voters and suppresses turnout. I'm not guessing at that, it's been proven around the country. RCV has been tried in about 20 jurisdictions, often immediately repealed when voters realize how badly it suppresses turnout and disenfranchises voters. It's been repealed in Burlington, Vermont, Aspen, Colorado, Pierce County, Washington, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and all throughout North Carolina, and efforts are currently underway to repeal it in the one state that has adopted it, the state of Maine. Several examples show the disastrous impacts of RCV on turnout and ballot spoilage. In Santa Fe, spoiled ballots increased by 650%. Spoiled ballot. That's a ballot that doesn't fill in every oval, that doesn't choose every candidate, that has a voter not be able to just select the one person that stands for their core beliefs, but actually vote for everybody, whether they support them or not. If you don't do that, and it goes to a round without the simple majority in the first, they call it a spoiled ballot and out it goes. Um, in Minneapolis, the University of Minnesota professors noted a clear pattern of ballot spoilage and lower turnout that benefited affluent voters. In San Francisco, a study by their university found a significant relationship of decreased turnout among both minority and white voters. In Santa Fe, spoiled ballots increased by 650% when RCV was instituted. Imagine walking into a polling booth intending to simply vote for one candidate and then being forced to play the connect the dots or fill out a massive six page bubble table or suddenly vote for every candidate in the race, many of whom you may not know or some of whom directly oppose your most important views and you're expected to fully and correctly fill out the ballot and have, or have your vote thrown out. RCV is a modern day literacy test that harkens back to the Jim Crow era. It's opposed by the New York and Nashville NAACP chapters and the ACLU for those reasons. Ballot exhaustion, spoiled ballots disenfranchises voters. Ballot exhaustion occurs, um, as I said, in if you don't want to fill out every one of the candidates, if you don't wanna rank all the candidates, if you have one particular candidate that truly expresses your views, that doesn't work if you go to run the following um, computer algorithm runs of the following election cycles and your vote goes away. How many votes go away? Well, a 2014 study found that RCV ballot exhaustion rates range from 10 to 27%. In San Francisco, where ranked choice voting has been in place since 2004, 27% of the voters effectively cast no vote in the 2011 mayoral election because of exhausted ballots. Not a small problem, ladies and gentlemen. Real world example of, of ballot exhaustion comes from Maine. In 2018, Representative Paula Quinn in Maine won his congressional district by 2,100 votes. He ended up losing the instant runoff or RCV by 3,509. Total votes were reallocated, but only 15,000 were counted because of, 23,000 votes were reallocated, but only 50,000 were counted because of exhausted ballots. That means 8,200 voters didn't get a vote. The winner earned only 49.18% of the election. Um, one of the things that my proponents of this issue say is we'll always have a true majority. Well, the computer system complained they earned 50.62 because it treated the missing voters if it never got voted. See how the core claim of the ballot initiative falls apart when you get into the details? People of all political parties in Alaska oppose RCV. Former Governor Sean Parnell and former Senator Mark Baggage have called RCV political trickery. 
Former Lieutenant Governor Mead Treadwell, a member of your club, noted it would totally confuse the process. The ACLU said RCV exacerbates economic and racial disparities in voting. The Memphis NAACP supported re repeal of RCV, saying it was not in the best interest of black voters and more research was noted. Even Governor Gavin Newsom called RCV a, fail, a false promise that does not lead to greater democracy. So we've discussed now how RCV and jungle primaries suppress turnout, how they disenfranchise voters, how they reduce transparency and election integrity while creating chaos, how they benefit the wealthy and politically corrected. 30 seconds, Brett. Alaska's current system is simple and transparent. Every Alaskan gets one vote and candidates with the most support win. Why would we want this failed experiment in Alaska? And more importantly, why do the billionaires that have provided over 99% of the funding want this failed experiment in Alaska? I believe this ballot initiative is not fair, not democratic, and it's not needed. Thank you for my time. Um, I'm pleased to introduce Scott Kendall. Scott serves as counsel to the Yes on Two for Better Elections campaign. Uh, for decades, Scott has worked all across Alaska in a variety of legal, political, and strategic consulting roles. Scott is currently an attorney at Holmes, Weddell, and Barcott, and most recently served as chief of staff to then Governor Bill Walker, though he made his name in politics by running the election protection legal work for the historic and successful Murkowski riding campaign in 2010. His wife, Selena Hopkins Kendall, was born and raised in Fairbanks, and together they raised their two kids in Anchorage. Welcome, Scott. Um, so Alaskans for Better Elections, a yes on two. It's about giving more power and more choices to voters. We, we trust the voters, and we want to give them more choices and effective choices. It was written, despite what you might hear, in Alaska by Alaskans. We've been uh, lucky to actually acquire some outside financial help but this was written to solve uniquely Alaskan problems. Our opponents don't have the policy or the facts to support them, so they will try to scare you. They will try to misconstrue or even you know, say, say some false things, but I'm gonna go through the policy here real quick. So there's problems in Alaska. We've got gridlock and we have people who are thrown out of office for doing the right things. Only 10% of the electorate can throw out a popular incumbent doing the right things in a closed primary. Um, we've got dark money flooding our elections and we have the issues where people play political trickery to put spoilers into races and cause people to win with less than majority support. So our solution is first, we end dark money. Second, we institute an open primary ballot, a lot like what Alaska used to have, except for the top four vote getters go on to the primary regardless of party or go on to the general rather. And we establish ranked choice voting. So first of all, dark money. Um, dark money is money that the Alaskan voters never know who donated it. There's a true source, that's who, who earned or inherited or what company made the money. And then they funnel their money through an intermediary called Alaskans for Better Families or the Chamber of Commerce or other groups that can essentially sanitize the money and then spend them in an election. Alaskans, unfortunately, don't know what that true source is and we seek to change that. So how the top four primary works. What you'll get, unlike now, where you, regardless of whether you're one of the 62, 63% of Alaskans who don't identify with a party, and you have to choose one of two party ballots. Now under the new system, you'll get one ballot and you can choose a Democrat in one race, an independent in another, and a Republican in another. So all voters show up, all voters' votes are counted, and the top four vote getters go on to the general election. Open primaries in other states have shown to cause turnout to explode. Uh, turnout has gone up as much as 50% in a single election cycle. And the great thing about that is more voters is gonna lead to better, more representative results. And those primary voters are gonna be more engaged and they're gonna show up for the general election. So here you see this voter voted for George Washington and the primary results uh, result in those four candidates moving on to the general. Now the general election ballot, this is what it will look like. It's not a huge grid, it's not a, you know, it's, it's not scary, it's, it's really, um, imagine a race in which there are three candidates and two of the candidates you like very much and the third candidate you loathe. 
if your candidate is in last place, the person you voted for, would you like to have some input between the other two candidates? Would you like to make that choice? What we have, unfortunately, is a system where a candidate can win, even though 60-some percent of the, of the electorate would have preferred either of the other two candidates. That's the spoiler effect. This seeks to prevent the spoiler effect, and it does not violate one man, one vote, um, or one person, one vote. It has been approved in the Ninth Circuit because it is your vote being, uh, you're actually asking to vote in the alternative. If your person is in last place, would you like your vote assigned to your next choice? Unlike what Mr. Huber said, our statute specifically says, if you wanna come in and show up and fill in that first bubble and that's it, you can do that. Your ballot will count and it will count just like it counts now. In fact, that's made so clear in the statute that even the ballot summary written by Attorney General Clarkson, who opposed this being on the ballot, admitted you can vote for only one candidate. That is clear. So some of the benefits. Um, we think, um, you know, a very, a, a first benefit is it eases the transition to vote by mail. The Division of Elections said they couldn't go to vote by mail in this election, even though we had COVID, because they didn't know which ballot to send a majority of Alaska voters. They couldn't send them two ballots. They didn't want loose ballots flying around. This system eases that transition, and wouldn't that be nice to have right now? Um, the other thing it does is it makes partisan redistricting obsolete. We're engaging in the, the redistricting process right now, and typically one party controls that process, and they attempt to put the opposing party into a disproportionately small number of legislative districts. Happens around the country, both parties do it. But it only works if you only have two choices. If you give voters more choices, redistricting becomes a zero-sum game, and it goes back to what it should be, which is just balancing populations between districts. Third, um, despite uh, the claim, it's been proven a decade-long study shows actually minority candidates and women candidates do better. And in fact, their representation grows to be proportional to their participation in overall society. Uh, Non-RCB jurisdictions, about 22% of the mayors are, are women. RCV jurisdictions, it's 50-50, just like it probably should be. So contrary to Mr. Huber's claim, a decade-long study shows um, diverse candidates and voters do better in a ranked choice uh, system. It increases primary turnout, as I discussed earlier. And finally, the big issue, Juno's non-responsive right now. We've had a fiscal crisis for six years, eight years, you know, figure it out. The solutions are there, but there is no bipartisan space for candidates or for elected officials rather to work together. The second someone crosses the aisle or smiles at someone of the other party, they get taken out in a closed partisan primary system because the parties right now are gatekeepers to the ballot. They decide who gets through. And once that person gets through, 80% plus of our races are non-competitive. They decide the winners. We think that choice should be given back to the voters. One minute remaining. Thank you. Um, and then finally, I'll just I'll kind of cover these in a in a hurry um, because we knew these attacks were coming. Ranked choice voting approved by the Ninth Circuit. Open primaries like this approved by the U.S. Supreme Court. Regulating dark money in terms of disclosure. It's actually approved in the Citizens United case, which said unlimited spending. But yes, you have to disclose the single subject rule. We won at Superior Court and we won at the Supreme Court. The Alaska Supreme Court has ruled as constitutional. And finally, there's questions about the length and complexity. I can get into those a bit in rebuttal, but essentially we're, you know, we're being um, attacked for doing what we should have done, which was we drafted it in legislative style, showing every addition and deletion rather than just saying the two or three things we want to do because we're about being completely transparent. And so finally, I just want to close with, we're not attacking anyone. We're not even attacking the parties. We are giving the voters more choices so that they don't feel like, gosh, you know, I, I supported a certain uh, public official and they did what my district wanted. And yet 10% of the electorate was empowered to go in and take them out. We think that's wrong. We think we trust the voters. And it, it's really about giving more choice, more voice, more power to the voters and breaking the party's stranglehold on the ballot. Thank Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program is a debate about Ballot Measure 2, the Alaska Top 4 Ranked Choice Voting and Campaign Finance Laws Initiative. 
Brett, uh, five minutes in a, a rebuttal. Great, thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate Scott participating in, this, participating in this debate as well today. So I'm going to cover a couple things. Certainly, it is allowable for me to decide to only support one candidate. The choice I make in doing that is if my candidate doesn't prevail, I don't. my vote gets thrown away, and people that might be directly opposed to me get to go ahead and vote in each round. So I didn't ever say that you couldn't do it. I just said you're going to be a part of that 27% of the votes that get thrown in the garbage, unless you pick right the first time. Next thing I'd like to talk about is the whole hypocrisy of dark money. We have $2.3 million raised by the other side. I don't know who their donors are. And, and, and I'm sure Scott's going to say, well, that is because on ballot measures, we've exempted dark money. So to do this, to come from outside, to bring big money, to make changes in Alaska where we're a cheap date because we're a small population, you spend less money, um, just puts you in a spot where, where uh, it, it just puts you in a spot, uh, I'm sorry, puts you in a spot where you, where you just don't get an opportunity to really, truly understand who is dark money, what is dark money, how does dark money work? It's going to take, as Scott said, people organizations like the chamber that want to be politically involved and make it onerous on them. Yet billionaires will be continued, will continue to have the opportunity to come and run ballot measures in our state without telling us what their motives are or where their money came. The Ninth Circuit has said that this is a great idea. The Ninth Circuit, the most important over the most overturned appellate court in the United States. If I have to count on the Ninth Circuit to give me advice, we're all in a world of hurt. Um, we need more votes, not a new system. I mean, I think we'd all agree we'd like to see more people participate at the ballot box. What this shows is less participate with RCV, not more. I'd love to see voter increase. And, you know, people lose elections. And we can lament losing elections, but Alaskans for years have understood that some win, some lose, some are close, some are distant. The idea that there's a duopoly, that there's only two parties that control our state, I just find laughable. The gentleman that claimed that spent two years working for independent Governor Bill Walker. Our current Speaker of the House, Bryce Edgman, is undeclared. He belongs to neither party. We have other independents that are serving in the legislature. We elected the first ever statewide office-holding libertarian of this state, Dick Randolph, one of my campaign co-chairs. Um, it's absurd to say that Republicans and Democrats control the world. They just don't. Alaskans are smarter than that. And I don't think we have parties that can pull their strings the way that Scott is suggesting. Here in Alaska, we know our elected officials. If you run on one thing and do something else and come home, your voters are likely not going to be happy with you. My understanding of a representative, a representative Republican democracy is that's how it's supposed to work. Um, I hear that we did this draft here and it wasn't anybody from outside, yet at Commonwealth North just last week, Catherine Gale admitted that this is a national push and called Alaska a swing state, an important state <coughs> to move this to other areas. Why us? We're a cheap date. We're a long ways away and they think that we're not gonna take time to be educated on the issues. I trust Alaskans. I think Catherine picked the wrong state as a test subject. We'll see what the voters say. There's going to be loads of noise this election season. There's going to be 60 or $70 million spent in the U.S. Senate race. There's going to be 10 or $15 million spent in ballot proposition one. It's a presidential race. We have all the candidate races. One minute remaining. Don't let it get lost in the noise. Just don't let it get lost in the noise. Do your own research. And when you've been educated and understand why you fall where you do on an issue, I ask you to share that with your groups with your neighbors, with your family, and in your circles. Because those that take time to read this thing thoroughly and do the research, uh, I'm, I, I, I trust Alaskan voters. That, that's it, Brett. Okay. Scott? Yeah, I wanna start off by saying, you know, a majority of this state, 60 some percent think we're going in the wrong direction. We're on the wrong track. The state's not headed the right way. The status quo is not serving the public. Um, and with that, I'd like to answer a few of, of Brett's uh, comments. First, no vote is ever thrown away, period. You vote in the first round. And if your candidate were in last place or in third place, 
you're in the same position you'd be under the current system. Under the current system, if there's three candidates and you voted for the person in last place, your vote has no impact on the outcome. All we're doing is we're offering every single voter the chance to be enfranchised, to have some say, so that we don't get candidates who have 37 or 38 percent winning a general election. But the tabulation under our statute is recorded at every stage. Every vote counts every time, regardless of whether you vote for every candidate. Second, on transparency, it's a real shame that Brett didn't visit our website before today's presentation because he'd see not only do we disclose, we over-disclose. Go to our website. I invite any of you to go. We disclose, as the law requires, the political groups that have actually written the checks to us. Underneath that, we actually say, but by the way, here are the people who have donated to these groups. We disclose back to the ultimate um, source of every dollar because we're not just complying with the world as it is. We're complying as with the world as we think it should be. So to the extent he says we're hiding our finances, 1000% false, and we'll send you the link in the comments. Um, the third point, um, you know, Brett's um, disavowing the Ninth Circuit's view. Well, the Ninth Circuit's view is the law of the land for us. But I would point out to him that on um, April or August 14th of this year, U.S. District Court Judge Lance Walker, a very recent appointee of President Trump, wrote the following. My limited charge is to determine whether ranked choice voting is contrary to the text of the United States Constitution. It is not. It is clear ranked choice voting is up to constitutional muster. Um, next, um, this idea that an algorithm counts the ballots. It's untrue. And, and the easiest way to describe it, I'll try to be brief, is imagine three candidates, 10 votes, and you're hand counting the ballots. You make three stacks of ballots, one for each candidate. The candidate in last place, you simply pick up that stack of ballots and you look at the second choice and you put those in those two stacks. That's really as simple as it is. And it can be hand counted and it can be recounted and it's completely secure and there's a paper record of every vote. Um, as to length and complexity, I think I touched on that. We've written it in the legislative style and we've actually produced our own uh, sexual analysis. So if Brett's interested in that, we'd be happy to send it his way and be happy to send it the, um, the Rotary's way as well. We are doing our diligence just like the legislature would. Kind of a final cu couple of comments is, you know, there's a quote from John Adams that says, the greatest danger to our country is if two parties come to dominate our nation. I would argue that where we are nationally and as a state, we're there. And it's Alaska's opportunity as a state with 63% not affiliated with either party to push back and do nothing more than just take power back for themselves as voters. Party bosses and operatives are going to oppose us and they are gonna oppose it from both directions because right now they have power without accountability. They're only accountable to their party. If they have the support of their party, they will get through their primary. And we saw that last Tuesday. The party largely controlled who won those races. Now those, those candidates move on to the general election where they're non-competitive because of the way the districts are drawn. We're talking about the, the people taking that party back through three simple reforms, which are easy to understand. And at the end of the day, do nothing more than give more choice and more power to Alaska's voters. You just heard a debate about Ballot Measure 2, the Alaska Top 4 Ranked Choice Voting and Campaign Finance Laws Initiative. That was recorded via Zoom on September 1st for a meeting of the Downtown Anchorage Rotary Club. Up next, on a previous Addressing Alaskans, comments against Ballot Measure 1 were aired without a counterpoint on what supporters say are its merits. In the interest of fairness, we now offer comments in support of Ballot Measure 1 made on Thursday, September 3rd by former state representative Les Guerra to the South Anchorage Rotary via Zoom. The question really right now in Alaska is what kind of state do we want to live in? 
Do we want to live in a state that people want to stay in or do we want to live in a state that people are leaving? And right now people are leaving. You all know them. You're all talking to people who are wondering whether we have a commitment to public education in the state or to the university and whether they can raise their kids here or whether they should. I know that you've spoken to people like that. I know I have. Um, let me start with the state part, the what kind of state do we want to live in? According to the university's Institute of Social and Economic Research, uh, their, their think tank, every $100 million in budget cuts, and we've been cutting the budget for six years in a row now, every $100 million in budget cuts costs us about 1,000 to 1,500 lost private and public sector jobs. It's less money in the economy, fewer teachers, fewer university staff, uh, less money go to seniors in terms of grants, and that's less money spent at a restaurant, less money spent at a retail business, less money spent around the economy. And as the money disappears, the job jobs disappear. So, so by the benchmark is roughly every hundred million dollars in budget cuts costs us a thousand to fifteen hundred jobs in the private and public sector because money's not circulating around the economy. Well, what have we done so far? In the last six years, we've lost over a thousand teachers and education staff. That's the state we live in right now. Last year, the governor vetoed and ended all state funded pre-K. So you were worried about those fourth grade reading scores uh, last year? Wait till you see them when there's no pre-K. Uh, Pre-K is one of the sort of great equalizers in society if we wanna uplift those who, who come into this world without much opportunity. So down a thousand teachers and staff, eliminated state pre-K, what have we done to our flagship university? Statewide, we've lost over a over hundred uh, university degree and certificate programs. The university is the biggest vocational ed provider in the state. Those, those are the certificate programs, auto mechanics, things like that. You can't get a chemistry, chemistry degree in Anchorage anymore. And now, People are uh, discussing about what sports we're going to lose. But that's what's happened to the university. Uh, we've lost 1,700 jobs at the university through these cuts, over $100 million in the last few years. We've lost 500 faculty, some who got terminated, and some who said, I see no commitment to this university anymore. I'm going to another university in another state. 4,000 students. And so what does this do? We're not preparing a workforce through our educational system if we keep cutting our, our school funding. But the University of Alaska, the majority of graduates stay in Alaska and keep their job talents here. They help build this economy. But with those people leaving now, 4,000 fewer students, if you leave Alaska to go to school, you're most likely not coming back. So we're taking a population of students who are most likely going to be the talent for our workforce in the future and sending them to other states where they're gonna be the talents in other states' workforces as our economy struggles. What else are we doing when we have no revenue in the state? We have a $2 billion backlog in deferred maintenance uh, between the state and the university. Those are people, those are construction workers who could be put to work. Those are engineers and architects and related professionals who could be put to work. But we have a $2 billion backlog that we can't address. We have a construction budget in the state that's roughly 75% lower in state spending than it was before the fiscal crisis started six years ago. We were averaging about $500 million a year in construction budget spending, spending that went to construction companies, construction jobs, engineering companies, architectural firms, and then, then that got spread around the community as the wages were spent in the community. Well, that's down about $400 million from before 2016. We're funding basically only that amount of a capital budget, a construction budget to match the 90% money that comes in from the feds. We're just doing the federal match. That's our, that's our capital budget right now. So you're down $400 million on your construction budget. That's roughly four or 5,000 jobs that we don't have in the state just from the construction budget cuts. So let's get into ballot measure one and how it helps repair that damage to our economy, how it helps bring back those jobs we're losing in our economy, how it prevents the further shedding and shrinking of this economy. Wally Hickel, no liberal once said, 
And this is a shortened version of his quote, but there's no vision, no hope, no future, no agenda for the state if your only cause is to cut the budget. But that's where we are. By the way, the state had $17 billion in savings before the current oil tax scheme was adopted uh, back in 2014-2013. That $17 billion is gone. We spent half of it last year. Uh, there were $2 billion remaining in that, of that $17 billion last year. The legislature spent half of it to balance the budget. It's almost gone. So we've got a roughly one and a half to $3 billion deficit facing the state. According to the legislative, uh, the nonpartisan uh, legislative finance division, uh, the budget deficit will be about a billion dollars if you have a thousand dollar dividend, it'll be about two two and a half billion dollars next year if you have the three thousand dollar dividend that a lot of people are running on. So one and a half billion to three to two and a half billion dollars next year in terms of budget deficits. Let's say one to two and a half billion dollars because re we really don't know what oil prices will be next year. You have no savings left after that if you spend every single penny of it. So the question is revenue. And be, before I get to ballot measure one, there may be some in the audience who say, why don't you adopt a sales tax? Why don't you adopt an income tax? Because every time that's been attempted, uh, uh, frankly, the oil industry and, um, and some of the wealthier interests have come in and quashed it. The House passed a fiscal plan in 2017 with a fair oil tax and an income tax and a permanent fund dividend that would have been bigger than what we have right now. Uh, we'd have no budget deficit, but that plan got blocked. And I was personally attacked on TV. That's fine. But so was everybody else who voted for that plan by the Chamber of Commerce. Um, so that's why you don't have any revenue in the state. And then even if the governor were to drop his opposition to revenue next year, if you passed a sales or an income tax, if that's what you believe should be passed for revenue, even if you pass one next year, According to the Department of, uh, Department of Revenue, it takes about 18 months to implement. So if you passed one in 2021, you wouldn't see the money till 2023. That's two years after you're out of money. How's that going to work for our schools or our university? Ballot measure one not only will help us on that front and shore up the economy and, and, and provide funds for our schools, and for the things that people want in the state, but it's fair. And just to start giving you an indication of how fair it is, let me show you Conoco's profits. Is, is that showing? Uh, just tell me if it's not. I, I'm yeah, gonna- It is, yeah, it's, it's fair. Uh, this is from Conoco's own annual reports. Every oil company in the state is allowed to keep their profits secret but under federal law, and they do, and they won't tell us no matter how many times we ask, but under federal law, Conoco has to provide its Alaska profits and its lower 48 profits uh, under sort of a, a unique part of uh, the SEC laws. And here's what we know from Conoco, that Alaska has been more profitable over the last four years than all of the lower 48 states combined. I know that they, they try and tell you that things are difficult in Alaska. Uh, we want our oil companies to profit. We want everybody to do well. Uh, but the oil also belongs to the people of the state of Alaska. And that was designed uh, at statehood so that we would have a resource base to pay for our schools and to support our seniors and to support our kids. And that's why we own the oil on state lands. And every other jurisdiction that owns their oil sells it at a high premium. We don't anymore. So over the last four years, according to Conoco's own annual reports, they made roughly $5.2 billion in profits in Alaska and lost $2.5 billion in the lower 48. So $7.5 billion more in profit in Alaska than all of the lower 48 states combined. And that repeats itself virtually every year. Uh, the other thing that you should notice is uh, oil companies are willing to lose money as they do in the lower 48 because they know in high price years, they'll make money. They're sort of wildcatters in that sense. But Alaska, we sort of guarantee profits under, under our, um, our oil tech system in almost every year. So 
The idea that Alaska tax is too high, what this chart is evidence of is that Alaska tax is way lower than the major oil producing states in the, in the lower 48. And when I say taxes, the, the, the main revenue that, that states get or the main cost for oil companies uh, to pay to produce oil is the royalty to the landowner. In some cases, as in the state of Alaska and some parts of the lower 48 states, the royalty gets paid to the landowner, and that's the state of Alaska and most places in Alaska. Uh, it's uh, private landowners or the state in the lower 48. Um, that's actually the biggest chunk of money that comes into all states, including the state of Alaska. Our royalty is about 12%. The royalty in the lower 48 is somewhere between 15 and 25%. Texas on state lands, it's 25%. So double what's charged in Alaska. So you can't just look at production taxes alone, but if you combine the production tax and the royalty for Alaska, Texas, North Dakota, Louisiana, in those states, the combined royalty, whether paid to a private landowner or to the state, depending on who owns the land, the combined production tax and royalty uh, is roughly 50% higher, 25% higher, almost 100% higher depending on the state in the lower 48 than it is in Alaska. So we, our tax and royalty system is far lower in Alaska. And that again is shown in this ConocoPhillips chart. That's why over the last four years, uh, in part, they were able to earn $5.1 billion in profits in the state of Alaska while losing $2.5 billion in the lower 48. Let's give you another comparison. Let me just take this off the screen so you're not looking at a screen constantly. Let me give you another comparison. Three oil tax systems ago, so we have SB 21 right now. Uh, the state almost repealed it in 2014, um, but we have that on the books right now. Um, before that, we had ACES, which was adopted um, after the sort of eco-corruption scandal happened uh, uh, with that oil field service company. But the oil tax that we had on the books um, for most of the time until 2006 was called the Economic Limit Factor, ELF. It was widely discredited as sort of giving away our oil. Now, let me tell you about ELF compared to the new, the new law that would be adopted by ballot measure one. The widely discredited ELF system, it had a different tax for every single field. Uh, the tax on Prudhoe Bay was about 12%. The tax on Alpine was about 11%. This initiative imposes a 10% tax on those fields. Uh, the ELF had a lot of flaws. Uh, many fields paid no tax whatsoever uh, under the ELF system. But those two larger fields, Alpine and Prudhoe Bay, paid a higher tax under that discredited tax system than ballot measure one would implement. So uh, let me actually give you um, two other facts. SB 21, the current law, you know, we look forward to future oil production in places like the National Petroleum Reserve and ANWR, and we've been told for years, and I voted to open it, we've told, been told for years that ANWR is going to be the savior for the state. Under Senate Bill 21, for the first seven years of production, we will have a 0% production tax in any field in ANWR, any new field in the National Petroleum Reserve, any field around the state. If prices are below $70 a barrel, that's just the way the current law works. Uh, new fields get a huge tax break, um, and, and that tax is zero for the first seven years of production at all prices below $70 a barrel. That's what you're going to get out of ANWR. Well, you can say we also get a royalty. On federal lands, we get half the federal royalty. On state lands, we get uh, one of the lowest royalties in the country, 12.5%. Um, according to the Department of Natural Resources, which did a study uh, right before the Walker administration uh, left in late 2018, according to a December 2018 study, um, we will actually lose money on any new fields in the National Petroleum Reserve uh, for the first 10 years of their production. 
not just get a 0% production tax, but will lose money. And that's because you combine the low production tax with the fact that they get to deduct their costs if they have other production in the state. So Exxon, Conoco, and Hillcorp now. Um, if they develop in NPRA uh, and they produce a new field, that field will actually cost the state money. We will lose money. We will get negative revenue from those fields for the first 10 years. That's the study um, conducted by the Department of Revenue in 2018. So I know, and I've, I've heard the line before, um, uh, uh, the Oil and Gas Association says, you know, this is a seven gazillion percent increase in taxes over current law. Well, when you have a current law that has no production taxes, zero uh, on new fields, that's what happens. Um, if you were, if, if somebody was being paid $3 an hour and you decided to pay them the minimum wage at $8 an hour, that's a 250% increase to pay them at poverty, right? That's a poverty level wage. Yeah, so if you, if you increase something that's almost nothing by a little bit, yeah, there you go. You can play the percentage game. But let's not play the percentage game. Let's play the facts game. The facts game is Alaska is massively more profitable than the states we compete with in the lower 48. Not just the states we compete with in the lower 48, but Conoco made more profits in Alaska than every single state combined over the last four years in the lower 48, 49 states together. Um, I will tell you that as a legislator, I have asked Exxon, I have asked BP, can you tell us your profits? And their answer has always been no. And then they'll continue and say, look, we'd like tax breaks. And then I'll say to them, I'd, I'd say to them as a legislator, well, I know you're asking for tax breaks. Can you show us what your profits are in the state of Alaska? And their answer is no. So that's another provision that's fixed by this oil tax uh, provision. It says that companies on the three fields that this provision applies to the three biggest, most profitable fields in the state of Alaska, or units technically, uh, Prudhoe Bay, Kaparak, and the Colville River unit, which is known as Alpine. On those three fields, they're going to have to share their profits. So we know what kind of money they make. So the next time they come in and say, hey, let's, let's design a new tech system, we know whether they need a break. But we know from Conoco's reports that they don't need a break. That as a matter of fact, we've given them such a big break that Alaska is the cash cow. And what happens with that money um, is that most of it leaves the state of Alaska. It goes to shareholder dividends. It goes to investments in other states. We don't retain the majority of that money that comes from the fields in Alaska. That's the evidence that we have. So let me ask you again, really, what kind of state do you want to live in? What kind of future do you want? Because the future right now without any revenue is a future of lost teachers. It's a future of parents saying, I don't know whether I see a commitment to public education in the state and I may take my profession and bring it to another state to benefit another state. We've got a university that's struggling to survive right now where you've got 4,000 fewer students this year than you did five years ago because students are saying, I just don't see a future in this university. Where you've got the kind of budget cuts that are causing job losses across the economy. Where you've got construction workers sitting idle. Where you have construction businesses that don't have the business they should have. This should be a vibrant state. But we've decided on self-imposed austerity. And the self-imposed austerity, you know from your own businesses, is killing this economy. We need fair revenue in the state. This is part of a revenue plan. Um, over the last five years, um, if, you, if you were to have had this law in place over the last five years, it would have brought in roughly a billion dollars in revenue, roughly closed the budget gap, but not fully. Um, and then again, if any of you are saying, let's do an income or a sales tax, it's too late at this point, right? That, that ship has passed. Uh, that revenue, even if passed next year, would not come in until 2023. 
So this is the only revenue on the table. And frankly, it's the only way to keep this ship of state afloat. And if we want to keep Alaska a place that people want to live in, as opposed to a place that people are leaving, then we need to pass ballot measure one. It's fair. It brings in the revenue need for the things that we believe in in the state, whether it's public safety, whether it's the permanent fund, whether it's the schools or the university, and it's the only revenue on the table and the only thing that can rescue the state over the next few years. That was former state representative Les Guerra speaking to the South Anchorage Rotary in support of Ballot Measure 1, the North Slope Oil Production Tax Increase Initiative. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You heard a debate regarding Ballot Measure 2, the Alaska Top 4 Ranked Choice Voting and Campaign Finance Laws Initiative, and an argument in support of Ballot Measure 1 to balance out some arguments we previously aired. You can find this recording on the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.